So this is the story of Naaman. And one thing I want us to see through this entire passage is that in all of it, in a multitude of ways, our God is the God of all. He is the God of all. And I think this story does an incredible job of giving us a miraculous picture, not only of a healing of someone physically, but of salvation, of an unexpected conversion of someone from Syria coming to worship the one and only true God. And we see a beautiful picture of what that looks like. And a lot of times with people, especially from people we might not originally expect would get saved, sometimes their conversion looks a little different than we might expect too. It makes me think of there was a boy at uh, one of the jobs I used to have a few years ago. I used to work at the YMCA before I started working um, in the school that I taught at and uh, a little bit while I was a youth pastor in North Carolina. And I loved my job at the YMCA. It was a lot of fun, but we started one summer camp, and there was a seventh grade boy, and I don't even remember his name. This has been almost a decade ago at this point. But what I do remember is that first day of camp, he hated me like horribly. And he was a big boy, um, just a, a big seventh grade kid. I do remember he was from some very northern state. He just had that Yankee spirit to him. If you're from the north, I'm sorry. That, um, just please don't be offended. But that's that just how he was. He spoke his mind even if it wasn't, you know, nice. <laughs> he always spoke it. And we butted heads from day one. He, we, we were doing a game in the gym, and he was just being extremely mean to other kids, so I had to get on him. Um, he tried to buck up at me a bunch of times, and that didn't go well for him. Um, but he just, he did not like me at all. And I remember after that first week of camp, just going home and thinking, I've got to get through to this kid. I don't want to suffer <laughs> the whole summer of just struggling with this kid. Well, I found out that his family had started taking him to church. And so I would start to have, you know, try to have a day when, you know, he didn't hate me so much. And I'd ask him how church was, and I would try to encourage those conversations. And I started to realize he was actually really, really enjoying it. And he was starting to really learn a lot from church. And I, he didn't stay long enough, and I wish I knew whether or not he actually got saved, but I don't. And so I truly hope that he kept going to church with his family, and I definitely prayed for him in that time. But I know that he was enjoying what he was learning, and he was learning a lot about God's Word. And I remember this, so whether or not he was saved or not, uh, I, I'm not sure. But I remember one day, by the end of the summer, I was his favorite counselor at the Y, and he would come talk to me all the time. That had completely changed, and he even would try to back me up when other kids would do bad things. Like one time, he was walking by, and there was a kid that had gotten in trouble and was yelling at me, and I was trying to calm him down. And in the process of that kid yelling at me, he took God's name in vain, used it incorrectly in a very rude way, yelling at me. And the first kid got so mad that he took, that was being rude to me and took God's name in vain that he went over there and shoved that kid and said, don't you talk about God that way. <laughs> and so I had to reel him in, and I pulled him to the side, and I had to explain to him, hey, I appreciate the backup, <laughs> and I appreciate your spirit behind it, but that's not quite how we go about things, right? I appreciate that you didn't want him to talk about God that way, but maybe shoving him wasn't the right way to go about it. See, we're going to see a, a conversion of someone like Naaman, someone that we wouldn't expect, someone who at the start of the story is an enemy, <laughs> of God's people. But God's going to take him and he's going to heal him physically. He's going to change him spiritually. We're going to see a change that Naaman doesn't understand everything right away. 
But we're going to see a fervent spirit in him of someone who has been changed by God and wants to follow him. So let's break down what happened, and there's a lot, of, a lot of lessons I want us to take from this passage. So let's talk about what happened in this story. It's laid out nice and easy for us in basically a um, narrative focus, as if you were just reading a book. It gives us the main person. We have Naaman. He's a commander of the army of Syria. Syria was one of the major enemies of Israel at this time. Now, at this time, they had an uneasy truce. Obviously, we see that because they're sending messages to each other. But basically, Syria knew that they had the power. And sometimes if they wanted to you know, break the uneasy truce, they would just go on raids. <laughs> and sometimes they would even raid the cities of Israel. And on one of those raids, there was a little girl. We don't even get her name. But an Israelite girl was captured, which probably means her family was killed. And they took her and she ended up being the little servant girl of Naaman's wife. And she's living in Naaman's house. We get a really cool picture here at the start where it says that God was actually using Naaman to give victories to Syria. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but don't miss that there. That's a very important statement. God gave victories to Syria through Naaman. That's a big point that we're going to come back to. And one of those victories included getting that little servant girl into Naaman's house. So Naaman was one of the most powerful men in all of Syria, this great nation at the time. But he had a problem. He had leprosy. Now, leprosy was a name given to a multitude, actually, of different skin diseases that uh, people would have back then. The worst of it is what we're familiar with, the kind of disease that would be extremely contagious. It would eat away at the body's flesh. Um, People that would get leprosy would normally have to go out into a leper colony and live with other lepers until either they somehow got healed, but most of the time they wouldn't. And it would either be fatal or sometimes they would live really long lives with that disease. Naaman's disease seems to be somewhat different. Clearly it's not hyper-contagious, or this story probably wouldn't have happened the way that it did, but we do know that it must have disfigured his skin in some way. It points to him being, you know, his skin being messed up, and especially when he's healed, it mentions his skin is miraculously changed and looks so much different. But whatever it was, it made him desperate enough to do some things we wouldn't expect a Syrian general or commander to do. He listens to advice from a slave girl, for instance, right? He's one of the most powerful people there in that nation. And this little Israelite slave gives him advice, and he decides to listen to it. His king even cares about his commander so much that he sends him to, and even though they're kind of in a truce, into an enemy nation to be healed. So Naaman did have that problem. And so they send a note, he goes to Israel, they go to the king, and we'll come back to the king in just a little bit, but the king is basically useless. The king doesn't even get named in this story, and I think that's pretty telling, right? Most likely it was King Jehoram, if you're interested in Israelite king history, as I am, then you can go back and look that up. But whatever, whoever it was, again, most likely King Jehoram, he was basically useless in this story. He gives no help, and he doesn't even think about this wonderful opportunity that his God has laid on his doorstep. And so, but instead of helping, he just tears his clothes and basically almost declares war. He looks at him and says, he literally just sent me this guy that I can't do anything to help with because he wants to start a fight with me. That's what he said in that verse. He wants to start a quarrel with me. He completely missed what God was actually doing. So Elisha saves the day. He sends a message. He's like, whoa, whoa, hang on. Send him to me. I'm going to help him and God's going to heal him. So Naaman goes to Elisha's house, 
And he shows up in all of his splendor. Did you catch how he showed up to Elisha's house? It says he rolls up to Elisha's house, literally, with all of his horses and chariots. He doesn't just go there with him and his servants. He shows up. I can imagine just the floors of Elijah's house shaking as all of these chariots and horses come up. And he shows up with all of these gifts. He literally had with him hundreds of pounds of silver and gold and ten changes of what would have been extremely expensive clothing to offer as a gift or at least to try to buy his way into this healing. He shows up to Elisha's house expecting this big, grand reception, but he doesn't get that, does he? I love this part for Elisha. I just picture Elisha looking, I don't think they had blinds, but he's looking through the blinds. Hmm, Naaman's here. Hey, servant, go get him. And so he just sends the servant out, and the servant doesn't do any miraculous thing. He doesn't roll out a red carpet and say, Behold, the great, mighty Elisha! And everybody claps and the magic trick person comes out. No, Elisha stays inside. And he just tells them, Hey, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. That's it. And Naaman doesn't like this, does he? He gets very offended. He starts walking away and he gets mad. He literally says, Behold, I thought he was going to come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord. He would, I love this part. He would wave his hand over the place and cure the leper, right? He expected to be treated like royalty, but also he expected some big grand spectacle, right? And we can't blame him too bad. We've actually seen some other miracles be done in some similar sense. Even Elisha had done some miracles like this. The problem was in Naaman's heart. He thought he deserved for these things to happen. We see here that he's a very prideful man. He even looks at the river and he says, you really want me to go wash in the Jordan River? Back there in Syria, we have the Abana and Farpar rivers. They're way better. See, in that section of Israel, the Jordan River was actually really narrow and pretty muddy. It wasn't even a good river to wash in. And so he looks at that and says, you really want me to wash in that? If all I needed was a bath, I could have stayed home. Why did I come all this way to do this? But finally, his servants convince him and say, no, the prophet gave you a good word. You should listen to it. He listens, he obeys, he washes, and he's cleaned. He's healed. And he runs back, and we'll dig into that next part in just a couple minutes. But he runs back to Elisha, and he's excited because he's healed, and he wants to thank him. He even wants to give him gifts, right? He wants to pay him for his healing. And Elisha tells him that you know, he's not accepting any of this. It's a gift from God, which is exactly what our salvation from the Lord is. And so that's the story. That's what's happened here with Naaman. And here's some different things I want us to take away from this passage. First, I think it gives us a lesson on conversion. So there are some things we can learn about salvation itself from this story. Way back in the Old Testament, long before Jesus even came and died on the cross, we see some great lessons about what salvation looks like in this story. The first lesson is this. Repentance starts with letting go of our pride. It's the first step of salvation, right? We have to repent of our sins, we have to come to an understanding that we are the problem, that we are the sinners. And that all is very hard to do when we're living in a place of pride, right, church? And we all struggle with it, don't we? That's what every sin, obviously or honestly, stems from. Every sin stems from a place of pride. Every time I commit a sin in my life, it's in a sense me telling God, hey, I know you said that I'm not supposed to do this but I'm pretty sure I'm right in this moment, and I'm going to do this. And we see that Naaman struggled with this. 
Yes, he was a powerful man, and he thought that was going to get him something, right? He was too good to go wash in these rivers. He went all this way to hear what the God of Israel would tell him to do. But when he heard it, and it was something humiliating to him, he thought, oh, I don't want to do that. But it wasn't until he let go of his pride and humbled himself. Naaman even thought that he could earn his healing through his position or with gifts, but he quickly learned that God works differently, right? It wasn't until he humbled himself and obeyed God's word that he was healed. And it healed more than just his skin. It healed his heart. It healed his soul. See, true change comes from repentance and obedience to God's word, not ritualistic or religious practices. We accept God's gift of salvation through faith, not through works or through payments. None of those payments, the things that he offered, none of the gold or silver or clothes, none of that was going to gain him salvation. It was merely obeying God's word. And that's something that our world today, especially here in America, needs to hear, right? Obedience to God's word, even if it's not what we want to hear. That's not what, sadly, a lot of churches today are sticking with. Nowadays, it's, you know what, I know God's word says this, but it feels more right for me to do life this way or for me to do this thing, so I'm just going to go about it this way. Anytime we have to put an asterisk next to God's word for something that we do in our life, then we've messed up. Naaman was only going to be healed when he followed God's word. Naaman thought, hey, our rivers are better. Fine, he wants me to take seven baths. I'll go take seven baths at home. No, no, that's not what God commanded you to do. God commanded you to do this, to wash in the Jordan River seven times. And when he finally let go of his own pride, humbled himself, and listened to God's word, he found healing. He found salvation. And that's what we have to do as well. And then after that, salvation brings change. True salvation will always bring change. Again, I don't know whether or not that boy had gotten saved by the time I left the Y or not, but God was already working a change in his heart. He didn't have it all together yet, right? He was still a little violent, um, but he was excited about wanting to, you know, honor God. If nothing else, he wanted to make sure God was honored, right? He just needed a little help past that. But salvation is always going to be cha uh, bring change. And after he was washed, I love this, we see a physical and a spiritual change in Naaman. His skin, the Bible says, became like that of a little child's when he came up out of the water. Don't miss the beautiful picture of that, by the way. The powerful commander of Syria's army now is described in the same way as that little slave girl that started him on this journey, right? There's even a play in the Hebrew words there when it says little child. It's ex when it's written there, it's extremely close to the way it also uses the words for little girl at the beginning of the story. He, the writer wanted to draw our attention back to that. This great and powerful man that thought he already had everything he needed in life, except for healing from his disease, had to become like that little slave girl that had no standing in his home. She was an exiled Israelite and a slave he needed to be more like her. Jesus would later tell his disciples and those listening to him that only those who were like little children would be able to come into the kingdom of God. It's their faith. Don't you miss the faith you had when you were a child? 
If you, if you grew up in a Christian home or you got saved at a young age, I was saved when I, at the age of seven, and I miss that faith that I had back then, right? Because just the world's your oyster when you're a kid, right? This little girl is looking at the, her master. Her, she's his slave, and she looks at him and says, hey, I know what can heal you. Like he's going to listen to her. Right? But she says, hey, I really wish you would go to my hometown in Samaria where there's a prophet and he can heal you. Has no idea if he's going to listen or not. She just knows that it's true and so she says it. Church, that's what we should be like. We shouldn't be so worried about all the other things that adulthood brings us. As kids, we were really excited to be adults, weren't we? <laughs> we were excited about all the freedom that it would bring. Boy, that was a lie. We were excited about all of these things that would come, but it, life just gets more distracting. It gets harder to have that kind of faith we would have as a child. Oh, that we could have that kind of faith. And so Naaman comes out of that water, and the Bible says that his skin is like that of a little child. But it's not just that physical change in him. His heart has clearly changed. It says that he runs to Elisha, and immediately this former idol worshiper has completely changed his theology. He looks at Elisha and says, there is no true God but the God of Israel. He said, I'm not going to sacrifice to any other God. He is the only true God. And that leads into that third point here, that Naaman doesn't get every part of theology right immediately after his conversion. And that's okay. I want to make sure we understand that. I feel like sometimes we get a little harsh on new converts to the faith, and we expect them that, like, they went to Bible college immediately after they get saved. They don't get everything right. That kid at the YMCA definitely didn't have everything right, but he was on the right path. Naaman here is so excited, and he gets the first thing right. He says, there is only one God, and I know that now. But then he doesn't get everything right. He actually looks at Elisha. If you were confused about this point, I used to be too, and I had to do a lot of research to figure out what he's talking about. He still tries to pay Elisha, right? And let's not fault him for that. When a doctor heal, you know, helps us get better, what do we do to the doctor? We pay them way too much. But <laughs> we pay them. And if I had had my leprosy healed, I would have wanted to pay him too. But Elisha reminds him, hey, this wasn't even me. This was God, Naaman. And you don't pay back God for his gracious gifts. That's what salvation is. It's a gift. It's a lesson Naaman had, had to learn. But then he asked for something that seems strange. He said, okay, I won't pay you, but could you please give me two mules load of earth? I remember reading this and I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> you were going to pay him and now you want dirt. I'm confused, Naaman. Well, here's why. See, Naaman up to this point was an idol worshiper. And what these people believed, especially the idol worshipers in Syria and most of the surrounding nations, was that if you were going to adequately worship a god, a particular god, then you needed to worship them on their home turf, right? So if you were going to worship their god, Rimmon, which he mentions in just a second, Rimmon's home turf was Syria. But if you wanted to worship him somewhere else, if you were going on a pilgrimage, you would have to take some of the soil from Syria and build an altar using that soil. And then you could worship Rimmon properly. And so he still thinks that God works in this way, right? He's like, can I want to make sure I worship God correctly. Can I take some of the soil from here in Samaria and take it back into Syria so I can build an altar to worship God there? Does he have that right? No. Do we have to take some dirt with us from Israel to pray and sacrifice to our God? 
Do any of you have some dirt from Israel with you this morning? (laughs) That'd be kind of cool if you did. But I don't think any of us do, and that's okay. We don't have to have that. Is it that big of a deal that he didn't have all those things figured out quite yet? No. Those corrections can come with time. And notice Elisha here. He doesn't get on him. He doesn't say, no, dum-dum, that's not how you worship God. He just encourages him. He's excited with him for this change that he's seeing happen in Naaman. And then we even see that change is evident because Naaman is worried about his own new conversion. He says to pray for him because when he goes back to Syria, he says, pray for me when I go into the house of Rimmon with my king. One of his jobs as the commander would be to take his king into the, the temple of Rimmon, their god, and the king would have to bow down and worship. And because the king is either you know, such royalty or old, Naaman would have to be the one to bow down with him and then help him get back up. And he clearly is knowing that he's not going to continue worshiping Rimmon, but he also knows that if he chooses to do this, he could very easily be executed and killed by his king. So he's left with this big dilemma. And so he asks him, pray for me as I have this strange dilemma in my life now as I go back and I have to bow down in there. Pray that God would forgive me. We see this clear change in this spirit of Naaman that he wants to please his God. And look, I've been, I've been a Christian for a long time now. And I still find myself wishing that I had that same fervent spirit that Naaman had sometimes, right? I want to have that same excitement that I, I did go to Bible college. I have more answers than Naaman, and yet we can get complacent, right? <laughs> that we can start going through the motions. And Naaman was real concerned, and he wanted to make sure that he was following this one true God with all of his heart. And that's something we all can take away from this Syrian commander. Amen? And so, quickly, I want to look at a couple other lessons from this story. The first is this, because there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of people in this story that I don't want us to miss the things God's teaching us here. The first one is this, the people who should have known better. There are two major people in the story, one we actually haven't read about, I'm going to summarize his story here in a moment, that really should have known better that I think if we're not careful, we can end up identifying with these people. The first person we did talk about, that was the king of Israel. Like I said, it was most likely Jehoram. Now, one of his major problems, though, was that he was also an idol worshiper. He sure believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel, but Yahweh was not his only God. He worshiped other gods as well. If there's anyone who should have been excited about this Syrian general, this enemy coming in seeking healing from God, it should have been God's king, right? It should have been Israel's king, excited. Hey, this is the commander of my enemy, and he's coming in, and he wants to learn. He wants to be healed. He wants to go see the prophet of God. This is exciting, (laughs) right? Can you imagine, if you don't know who this is, right? One of the most prominent atheists still alive to this day is a man named Richard Dawkins. He is a man that he wrote a book called The God Delusion. He encourages his followers to openly mock and make fun of Christians. He does not like us. Can you imagine if Richard Dawkins had come in to our church service today with an actual interest not to make fun of us, but he said, I want to hear what you have to say about God. And instead of being excited and being like, yo, Richard Dawkins wants to hear the Bible. (laughs) This is great. Instead, I said, oh, Richard Dawkins is here. He just wants to start a fight. You know what? This isn't worth it. Everyone go home. What a shame that would be, right? 
And that's what this king does. He's so far removed from God. I had to, I, I didn't, re, I've taught this story to students so many times, and I actually missed this all those times until preparing for this. He actually quotes scripture in his proclamation while still somehow leaving God out of the equation. He quotes apart from Deuteronomy when he actually says, why does he send someone to me that only God can kill or heal? That's actually a direct quote from a part of Deuteronomy. He even quotes scripture while completely missing the whole purpose of God bringing this man here. This king should have known better. And church, I hope that we don't become like him, like if we had a similar situation to that. We pray for the lost in our community all the time, don't we? We pray for people that don't know Jesus to get saved, even the ones that we might not expect to ever do it. Even ones who might call themselves enemies of God or enemies of the church. But I pray that if they were ever to enter our doors, that we wouldn't be like this king. That we wouldn't miss the opportunity that God had literally would bring to our doorstep, but we would be excited for what he is going to do. The second person that should have known better is Elisha's own servant, or servant named Gehazi. We didn't read through this passage for sake of time. It happens right where I left off. And I encourage you to go read this for yourself, but I'll summarize it for you. Elisha made sure that Naaman did not pay him for God's healing. He's like, that's not how God's miracles work here. But Gehazi was basically one of Naaman, um, all the names mixing up, Elisha's right-hand man. He'd seen Elisha perform other miracles. He'd seen him point people to God. This was a man who knew God's word. He was right there with God's own prophet. But he got bothered that Elisha didn't take these gifts. Elisha sends Naaman on his way. He gives him the dirt. Naaman's going away, and Gehazi gets a plan. He says, you know what? Elisha doesn't want some money, but I'm not Elisha. And so he runs Naaman down and he makes up a story. He says, hey, right after you left, some other men came, some other prophets came, and um, they need some help. So could you give them some of your gold and silver and a couple changes of clothes to help them? And bless Naaman's heart. He's so excited to have a chance to help. He goes, yes, of course, I'd love to. Again, it's, it's kind of a shame, but you just see that excitement just pouring out of Naaman, right? He's like, I'd love to help, finally. So he gives him the money and the clothes, and Gehazi takes it, and he hides it away in his house. And then he goes back to Elisha, and I love this moment. And he walks in, and Elisha says, Gehazi, where were you? He's like, oh, I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but Elisha knows better. And he tells him what he did, and he said, this was not the time to go and gain profit for yourself. And because of your sin... The leprosy that, that was healed from Naaman is now going to be upon you. And immediately Gehazi gets the leprosy that Naaman had been healed from. This was a man who should have known better. He should have seen in this incredible moment of generosity and grace that the prophet gave to Naaman a chance to worship God and say, this is the kind of God that I serve that doesn't work based on these kind of gifts or payment. He just heals because it's his pleasure. He heals even his enemies because that's his joy, but he didn't. All he cared about was himself and what he could get out of it. And maybe we wouldn't necessarily go that far, but that's what happens in a lot of churches today. I, I was reading a book about um, just you know, different types of churches, and one of the titles it gave this was the country club mentality. There's way too many people that want to go and find a church that's going to treat them like a country club. That they're going to go in, and basically, I get my seat, 
my assigned seat probably, right? No, no visitors better sit in my seat, by the way. We're going to have some problems, okay? I'm going to sit in my seat. I'm going to get a feel-good message. I'm going to hear some good songs, right? I'm going to go to a meal and enjoy the food. I'm going to go to any other events that we have, and I'm going to enjoy it, and then I'm going to go home. And that's what they expect church to be. Church becomes about us. That's all Gehazi cared about. He got to see God be glorified by one of his enemies. And all he could think about was Gehazi. And church, I pray that wouldn't be us. Amen? I pray that every time we enter these doors, whether it's for a sermon or a cantata or a missions meeting or an event or a meal, that the ultimate goal would be the glory of God being spread through our church and our community. That's the purpose. So it's the ones who should have known better, but also there's the ones that God chose to use. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God loves to use the people we don't expect to fulfill his purposes, right? We have some really incredible people in the story. We have Naaman, and one of the most powerful men in Syria, and we have Elisha, the chosen prophet of God in Israel, who we've already seen in Scripture up to this point doing incredible things for God's purposes. But in the, and while, yes, he does use Elisha, look at the other people he uses. He uses a slave girl and a Syrian general or commander's servants. The slave girl had no standing in Naaman's house. She was an exile-turned-slave, and yet she still knew that her God was able to heal her master. And she was even willing to help her captor. This little girl genuinely loved her enemy in the same way that Christ teaches us to do all those years later in the New Testament. That little girl, she's not even named. And I can't wait to find out her name one day. <laughs> I can't wait to find out who that little girl was, but she's not even named. But if it wasn't for her faith, the story wouldn't be the same. Likewise, Naaman's servants took a risk in speaking to their master in the way that they did. We clearly see that Naaman is a prideful man, and now he, in that moment he was an angry, prideful commander, right? His servants have no right to give him advice. <laughs> I'm the commander of Syria's army. Who are you trying to give me advice? But those servants heard truth through the prophet's words. They said, truthfully, a good word was spoken to you, Naaman. You need to listen. He could have done whatever he wanted to do to them in that moment. <laughs> According to the way Syria's you know, army and military worked, if he had just wanted to you know, either exile them or kill them in that moment, he could have, according to their own laws. But they still did it anyway. They felt something clearly from God in that moment, and they spoke up. There were some real big people in this story, but that's not who God chose to use. In fact, he took the biggest one there and made him appear like the smallest character or person in this story. He made Naaman's skin look like that of that little girl's. God loves to take the people that we would never expect to fulfill his purposes. So may we never count ourselves, because sometimes we're that person, or anyone else out when it comes to God's purposes. God can and will use whomever he wants to fulfill his will. In fact, that's normally his favorite way of getting things done, isn't it? And there's one final thing I want us to learn from this, is that we can see God's sovereignty through this entire story. I said from the beginning, what we're going to keep coming back to through this story is that God is the God of all. And if we've paid attention, 
you see that weaved through this entire story. The passage, in fact, starts by claiming that God is the God of the Syrians. Did you notice that? It says that God gave victories to Syria through Naaman. Throughout this whole main part of the Bible, we're used to seeing God gave victories to Israel. His people, right? But that's not what it leads, that's not what it leads off with. God gave victories to Syria through Naaman. God is sovereign over all nations, not just Israel, not just America. God is the God of every nation. And look at all the things that happened in this story that showed God weaving his way through it. God gave Syria to victories led by Naaman. God allowed Naaman to be afflicted with a skin disease. God allowed a little Israelite girl to be captured and placed in Naaman's home. God brought Elisha to the girl's mind. God worked through Naaman's servants to help him humble himself and obey. And God was worshipped by one of the most powerful men in the Syrian nation. All of these things led to God's ultimate purpose of his name being glorified. All of those pieces had to fall into place, and God orchestrated every single bit of it. And Naaman's conversion then echoes a prayer that is actually our um, scripture reading that Joseph read for us this morning, that echoes all the way back actually to God's covenant with Abraham. If you've been here as Alex has been going through Genesis, you'll be familiar as one of the parts of the Abrahamic covenant is God says, and through you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Joseph read for us that it was Solomon's prayer when he created that temple. He said, not just that Israel, that this nation would come to this temple and worship God, but it's my prayer that all would know that there is one God and he's the God of Israel. And that's what we see in this story. You know, the other part I wish we got more of, and I can't wait to meet Naaman in heaven one day and figure it out, is I wonder who else Naaman told. I wonder, did he go back and tell his wife? I'm sure he did. Did his wife come to faith in Yahweh? With the position that he had, did he start to tell other people about the God, the one true God of Israel? What happened after this? I wish we got more. We don't. And so there's so many questions. Luckily, we have an eternity to ask God and try to figure it out, right? But I have to wonder what happened when he got back. But even if nothing else, the name of God was worshipped by another nation because of God's sovereignty. So this story opens and closes with reminders that our God is the God of every nation. He didn't belong to Israel and church. He does not belong to just us. He is the God of all. And that's wonderful news, isn't it? It's a reminder to us that no matter what happens in our lives or the lives of the people all over the world, it's all in God's hands. He's working in every situation to fulfill his purposes for his glory, and he uses all people everywhere to do so. And what a day it's going to be when we do find ourselves in eternity and get to see all the nations gathered together to worship and proclaim exactly what Naaman worshipped. Glory be to the one true God. So church, as we go to, the God, um, if we go to God in prayer in a moment, I want us to think about that. I want us to think about this passage as we go to a time of invitation. Are there people in your life that you know that might be like Naaman? Maybe it's still you. Maybe you haven't reached a point in your life where you finally truly humbled yourself, set your pride aside, and realized that you need to accept that free gift of salvation 
that Jesus offers us? Or are there other people in your life that you've been praying for? Praying for? Maybe there's even people that you've written off as people that would never get saved, that might not ever come to church. May we lift them up in prayer that God in his sovereignty would work in their lives in the same kind of way that he worked in Naaman's. May we pray that we as a church would have that sole purpose of seeing God glorified in all the nations. Yes, starting here and easily, spreading out through our nation, but to every nation on the planet. Because that's our goal, that he, he is the God of all, and we want him to be known by all. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word, God. We thank you for this incredible story of healing, both spiritually and physically. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning as we go to a time of invitation. That if there is anyone in here this morning who hasn't accepted salvation through Christ alone, that they would humble themselves and repent of their sins and get that settled this morning. But God, I pray also that you would bring to our hearts anyone that we... uh, might know that doesn't know you, that hasn't found that salvation for themselves, that we would lift them up in prayer to you, God, that we would pray for your will to be done in their lives. And God, I pray that you would be with us as a church, that it would always be our prayer, that you would be known by everyone all over the earth as the one true God. God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts as we go through this time of invitation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.